Hello and welcome to Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and it's my pleasure to welcome Michelle Cahill. Michelle is the author of fiction, essays, and two collections of poetry, the most recent of which, which uh, Varupa, was shortlisted for the Victorian Premier's Literary Award. She's the editor of the online literary magazine Mascara and co-editor of the anthology Contemporary Asian Australian Poets. Her story Duende won the 2014 Hilary Mantle International Short Story Award, and she's here today to talk about Letter to Pessoa. Michelle, welcome. Hi, Maggie, and uh, thank you so much for having me on the program. It's great to be on the program. My pleasure. So before we begin chatting, can I, can I ask you please to just read a little bit from Letter to Pessoa? Yes, that would be great. I'd love to. Um, I'm going to read from the story Orbade for Larkin, which is um, inspired by the poem, by Larkin's poem Orbade. A framed sepia portrait of Quinn's mother, taken in her youth, is placed on the bench top by a half-empty bowl of fruit. There are bills, a checkbook, several paperback books, and an A4 notebook in two piles on the kitchen table. He selects one of the books, a thumbed Faber copy of Philip Larkin's collected poems. Something about the terse, gloomy simplicity of these verses appeals. Orbade acquaints him with a suburban narrator, a mordant drinker not unlike himself. He pauses to consider the everyday partings which slow him into hesitancy and the bigger one which lies beyond the boundaries of ours. The many deaths, the countless repetition of dying, the slow waiting, the impossibility of perfect happiness or unhappiness, the certain knowledge that he fears which makes him fearless. That the world is rented, life a wager, plain as daylight. He considers what it would take for him, why he cannot seem to abandon the whetstone of his irrational and foolish whims. He should stop gambling and trawling porn. He should build the aviary for the finches he had always wanted to keep and finish renovating the half-empty house. Isn't it time to accept that he's over the eight years of cohabitation with Monica, their lives drifting apart? not always dishonestly or unhappily. He should ask her to leave and find a place of her own, or he should simply send the contract for a divorce settlement to her by post. By now she would be waiting for him to walk back from the station. A teapot would be warm, ready to brew. Monica would be pacing the bedroom. From the moment he would unlock the door and enter the hallway, an aroma of freshly baked scones would drift from the kitchen. A postman is cycling the streets from terrace to terrace under scaffoldings, along the pedestrian path navigating people, children, traffic lights, roadworks, and weaving through the jackhammers. There are ambulances winding their way to the outskirt boroughs. Paramedics inject the central veins of a man who arrests in the dead of night. Doctors drain the frothy lungs of an old woman with rattled breathing and swollen legs. It may happen without warning, as a fall from a balcony, a suicide bombing, or never recovering from sleep. How often do we rehearse our partings? None of this should matter. He goes back to bed, lies next to Prem, tapping him lightly on the shoulder. He traces his name on the unfakeable soft skin. Prem stirs, mumbles something. His ears are still ringing from the music. What time is it, he asks, blinking. 
early. Light plays on Prem's mouth. His slightly stained teeth have minute chips. How did you sleep? Fine. Prem smiles, leans into the hollow of his chest beneath the collarbone. Wasn't the band good last night? I love the lead singer, Prem says. Yeah. She moves in a strange way. It feels good to run his hand through Prem's thick, wavy hair. Last night, as they drifted into a stream of pedestrians haloed by moonlight, the river sloshed and curled, licking the pylons of the scale rain bridge. He ought to be the guardian angel watching over his lover, protecting him from harm or from death. To watch is a danger, but it is surely not the equivalent of being caught. He says nothing of the morning's trivia, his uncle's abuse, the poem, the brief epiphany in the kitchen. Only this. Sorry to wake you. It was urgent. Mm. Uh, so much is going on in that. I mean, there's, there's the piece itself, but there is also Philip Larkin's Obat. So you've got this kind of interesting dialogue happening within that work. Yeah, I guess... I wanted to share that one because um, uh, I think uh, some, some some people have sort of have, have been hesitant about or have 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 been concerned about the letters being maybe maybe not maybe I think there's a reluctance to lead, to read multiple narratives and I wanted to show how I wanted to share how I think the the, the sound of it works for me as a writer and and um, and to share that my reading of it. I guess, and yeah. It, it's an interesting question. I mean, because I wonder why people are reluctant to deal with <laughs> multiple narratives. I think it's quite exciting to have a work. And, and I felt that all of the book was self-contained. I really did. I mean, I did know quite a few of your references, which is a, a little extra dimension and quite fun. Quite fun in that, for example, to see how you pulled from Larkin. But at the same time, it, it is self-contained, and I don't think you do need to have that reference. But but it kind of broadens out the work. It, it it adds an exciting element, don't you think? I hope so. Um, I hope so. I mean, I, I, I guess uh, I guess it's 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 a little bit. Um, it's a thrill to to take a piece of work and then just write something completely different. You know, so it's a thrill for me to to write this um, with a narrator that is bisexual, for example. Um, and then it's just kind of, it's it's testing my imagination to be able to do that and my skills with language, um, to see how how I can stretch um, what we know of, of of reality into something into some into into the fiction and um, and how I can make that um, believable. Yeah, I think that's kind of that's 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 playful and exciting part of fiction. Mm. And, and no fiction sits in isolation. I mean, all of writing, poetry and fiction, is, is something of a conversation with its precedents, its, what's happening today and so forth. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there's, um, there, I think there's very much a sense in the book that a lot of the elements are integrated. Um, uh, you've mentioned... Oh, I should, I'm sorry, Maggie, I should let you ask the question. It's all right, no, just go for it. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, no, I, I think there's just a sense of integration of different elements, the, the, the philosophical um, uh, bits and pieces that, that we pick up, um, theoretical, um, um, yeah, just the, just the, and, and just the fictional, the narrative aspects as well of the stories. Um, yeah, and I'd love to talk more about the shif shifting genre of the work. But before we do, um, tell me a little bit how the book came together, because it, it, it seems to have this kind of unifying structure of this ongoing story and the letters, which in, in many respects kind of provide um, leafs, like, you know, different sections of letters versus the story. Yes. Um, so I guess... It came together in a sense, really, that I was just through um, different aspects of my writing process. It wasn't sort of a, a deliberate or contrived um, decision to, 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 to put this together. Although at one point, when I, after I wrote the letter to Derrida, I had a thought that maybe I could do this with some other writers and theorists and um, um, people who had it, writers who had inspired me. So that was a consideration. At that point, I think um, to use the frame of um, the letter, the epistolaries. But um, as I mentioned, it was it was more just about my writing process as such. I think there was a couple of things like I was I was writing fiction. I was always writing fiction, and I was writing poetry. And my fiction was I wasn't I had written a novel. I'd written several edits of the novel, and I'd. I sent it out to a couple of publishers and it was difficult to get it published. Um, and I was starting to, I had started to, to um, develop some of the chapters which I thought could make short stories and, and make them into short stories. Um, and, of course, each of those took in, um, many, many revisions and, you know, often up to two years to, to, to kind of um, to, to make them into short stories, which was quite a different thing to a chapter of a book, of a novel. Um, at the same time, I was keeping a blog, um, and and I think the blog was was an interesting space because it sort of taught me um, this um, how I could use a second person to address a public audience, but in an intimate voice, and how I could um, I could use the, that voice of the blog to be ironical and to be. Um, Sometimes sceptical of things that were happening in in in, in the writing industry, um, uh, or it could be also it was in some ways it was almost a friend. It was a, a very intimate space where um, I was quite estranged in my personal life, and the blog was in some ways my most intimate um, uh, correspondent. I suppose I felt like as if I was corresponding. I had an imagined reader in mind as well as a public reader. So there was a duality happening there. Um, so I think that was it. that was interesting. Um, and then um, another thing, I guess, was, um, as, a, as mentioned, when I started to write the, the letter to Derrida and then I thought, well, look, I really enjoyed the letter to Derrida. I loved writing it. Um, and it took me a very long time to actually get it to... Um, the, the publication uh, the, the, the point where it was ready to be published and you know I was drafting it for a long time uh, which uh, I think that's another aspect of the book is the 
um, that, that it presents the idea of the writer being someone who is rewriting and who is drafting and who is revising, um, just as the reader probably um, rereads parts of the book, but also the idea of the writer being a reader is very much part of the book, I think. Um, that, that, that's why there are these correspondence with other writers. Um, I'm as much interested in in rereading their work or interpreting their work or thinking about their work from my perspective as I am about writing to them, addressing them and writing my own narrative. Mm. So in, in some ways that's metafictional in the way it kind of refers to itself as a process. Yes, um, it, it's sort of metafictional in the sense that it's um, uh, looking at looking at the structure of, of, of what makes the structure of the story and dismantling that in some ways or, um, or um, bringing the textuality to the surface um, where the writing becomes writing becomes something that is um, almost sacred in a way. Mm. I think that the stories that I love the most and that I really enjoy reading to share with people, this is how I see this working for me, are the ones where the writing almost, you don't actually have, for me at least, you don't actually have to know what it means anymore but the language just takes over and um, becomes a voice which carries something that's kind of um, sort of metasemantic in a way. Mm. Oh, well, particularly yeah. if you're writing about Derrida, which must have been a little daunting for you. You did brilliantly but, you know, I can imagine how hard it is to go in there and, and take this body of work and try and distill some aspect of it into a, a coherent story? Um, well, I don't know that I really, you know, I don't, it's interesting, I don't sort of see myself as someone who's theoretically, um, uh, who knows, you know, I, I'm not necessarily the most familiar person with Derrida's work or anything like that. But um, that, might, that might have helped you in that case. Yeah. Yeah, it's. I think it's. I think it's kind of like just starts out with a lot of the writing. It starts out with a voice, and then it's it just builds. But I guess at, at the same time, I do know something about his work as well. So, and I did. I did read a lot more and look research a lot more about his his um, work um, after my editor was was suggesting that you know I needed to work on that one. Um, so, yeah. The, with, with all of them, there are, there are layers of writing. There's the first layer, which is the inspirational stage where you just, you know, you start out with a voice and then you, you kind of like, you, you need to kind of um, read more and and then make, build build into the narrative so that it is, um, it, it carries meaning, um, not just the sort of, the, not just a little bit of, and kind of connection, a vague connection. It needs to sort of go deeper and be developed, and so that's what I was doing with them. It was a lot of fun. For sure. And what yeah. you're saying, you know, there's there's always this MBA formula for fiction that uh, it has to have conflict. Um, but I have heard I have heard it said 
that that's a patriarchal notion, that it, in fact the, the reading and writing of stories are more about moments of connection and disconnection than about conflict and opposition. Um, I just read that actually in James Bradley and I immediately thought of what you're saying or thinking of what you're saying now. Um, was that something you were really aiming for, these, these connections and disconnections with the reader, with yourself as writer, with the, um, the references that you're using as well? Um, I think connection is definitely an important thing for me as a writer, just generally, um, in the sense that I, I writing in any kind of writing, whether it's poetry, whether it's essays, any kind of writing that doesn't connect um, with a reader, to me, I'm not, I'm not just that sort of abstract kind of writer that just wants to write dry things. I really think ultimately that the re part of the reason that I'm writing is that I am a person that does want to connect and communicate ideas. I mean, my writing actually stems from, like, um, a lot of self-learning. I've been a very self-taught person and I was thinking about some of some of the ideas that people have been putting to me, putting forward to me, reviewers and, and interviewers about the book and I've been thinking about some of them and it's, it strikes me that when I think about it, I've been between cultures um, from the time of my childhood, um, not, not being um, strictly Indian, not being strictly, you know, English, not being strictly Australian. Um, that is something that is so intrinsic to me that I probably take it for granted how much I have been living in between cultures at the same time that I've um, been fortunate enough to have quite, um, quite a rich education in both the fields of science and in the fields of the arts. And um, at, at the same time, I um, also have self-taught, so I've, I've, I've kind of studied Buddhism at an empirical level and um, uh, and also, yeah, probably more at an empirical level, I've studied Buddhism and, um, and another kind, I've been interested in other kinds of philosophies and that was bef before my writing, um, I mean, at that point in my life I was writing, but I wasn't uh, writing at, at the kind of more serious level that I, I started to in the last sort of 10 to 15 years. So, um, I think what is all that, what, what all that kind of um, being in between cultures and being self-taught, I think what it did is it gave me a very independent mind because I was between cultures. I was, I think I, my writing um, tends to be um, not necessarily wanting to conform. It, it wants to, it just, it's comfortable to be non-conformist. And that's just something that's part of who I am as a person. And, and I think it also reflects in the prose that there are different elements coming through. There's like at times there are registers of the essay or at times there are very poetic and imagistic and um, um, com compositional aspects to the writing which, which do reflect um, my interest in poetic language. Um, and... And uh, at times there are, um, you know, there'll be philosophical aspects and um, also the fragmentation does actually reflect my own Buddhist um, um, knowledge, you know, that, that the mind is actually a place where everything is fragmented, whether it be um, 
the aspects of the mind, whether it be uh, memory, feeling, reason, um, uh, imagination. These are all to, to these are all constructs which are impermanent, and this is something that's very deeply embedded in 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 who I think I am as a person. This sort of this Buddhist perspective. Um, so I think it's not just a post-structuralist thing, and I actually have actually um, looked at at the connections between Buddhism and deconstructionism. Um, I wrote an essay about that um, some years ago. I think it was back in I first started thinking about it in 2009 when I was asked to um, to think about this for for for. A festival I was attended. What what was the connection between writing and Buddhism? So that sort of made me think about deconstructionism and Buddhism, and and then I ended up writing an essay, which um, a more theoretical essay. So I was kind of like um, dabbled in various disciplines, I guess, if that makes sense, Maggie. Yes, it does. <laughs> and this seems to me to be what what is distinctive about your work that it it is focusing on these sort of. Um, I guess in a Buddhist sense, really, the the way in which the genre of the work or even the construct of fiction versus, you know, what might be considered memoir or might, what might be considered history, um, how those things in, in a, you know, in quite a naturalistic sense are, are artificial and, and can be transcended in some way or another while still working within those constructs. Yeah. So. Yes, those, in, those intersections. But the other thing that I, I, I like about your work and that I, I think speaks to me as also as a migrant and maybe to other migrants is what you, you call um, the ambulatory praxis. You know, this idea of the movement between places as in itself being a kind of place. <laughs> yes, yeah. I think, I think um, very much there's, um, there's a... There's pretty much a dynamism about the the um, the writing, isn't there? Um, uh, it seems to sort of like move. I mean, it's hard to sort of like analyse one's own writing, but it does seem to kind of like have an energy about it and um, moving from uh, one, uh, not just in, in sort of like the the causality and the um, the temporal pacing of the, of the narrative um, I think it's, it's it seems to move uh, very much from images from places from perspectives at times and but I, for me the craft of my writing is to get that fluidity working correctly and I'm not I'm bringing to it my own skills I think um, and that that's probably um embedded in how I experienced reality, which has been, as you say, you know, for the migrant, there is a, the, the idea of moving and um, the idea of contingency, the aesthetics of contingency, where, um, this, you know, in a way, conventional narrative sets up an idea of stability that is quite foreign to me. As, as being someone who's who spent their childhood in three different countries, that it and um, when you do that, you have to leave your past behind you and re, and and start as a new person and forget 
forget the past in a way. Um, and also then, of course, just my life as a writer in the last 10 years has, has been, it's very much that kind of life in a way where you you are constantly, um, it's very hard to build stability into the kind of writing life that we lead um, for, for a range of reasons. So, um, yeah. I think... Yeah. It makes for quite an exciting read, I think, to have this simultaneity happening, um, you know, in in the work that we, we are in multiple places at, at once, as one is, you know, we, being in Australia, you're probably also seeing through a lens of otherness. Yeah, and well, that um, the contemporary the contemporary mind, you know, we're, we're constantly being bombarded with messages and with information and we're, we're, in, we're in many places at once. We, we are truly transnational in that way. Um, so, um, and it's actually our focus. It's, it's often hard to sustain as well because there are so many interruptions. Um, so I perhaps the style of the writing is not all that foreign for people as it might um, at first yes. sound as yeah. if it, it, it might be. Yes, it's kind of the, the modern short story, really, <laughs> the modern world. Um, but can we talk about the letters a little bit? I mean, how did you choose? Did, were, you, did you, were you specifically picking um, the, the um, authors that you were writing letters for uh, with a, a particular um, focus in mind? Um, I mean, for example, I noticed that each one was from a different country. Okay. That's, that's something I hadn't been aware of, but that's wonderful. Um, that's great. It's, it's really, it's, it's great to get feedback about the book because people have picked up things that I, I wasn't even aware that was, that was happening. So, um, uh, I guess they were just really my favourite writers and as well as the letters, of course, there are also um, stories like Duende, which which is um, intertextual with Lorca or um, stories like Chasing Nabokov, which is um, inter intertextual with Nabokov, who's, a, you know, he, he's one of the writers that I greatly admire. Um, Virginia Woolf... Uh, Yes, and, I, I um, and, and Coetze, I'm a huge Coetze fan. Um, Wolf, I did notice, uh, was the only female. I beg your pardon? I said I did notice that Wolf was the only female. Yes, there was another one as well, um, oh, uh, the letter to Margaret Atwood. Oh, and, yes. But that it was, um, yeah, it was um, taken out of the manuscript. <laughs> um, but, yeah, they, I guess... It's true that they are basically men, male writers. So um, uh, uh, maybe that says something about the um, the, the the kind of uh, pre pre preferential publishing trends that have you know prioritised male writing and all and all the other biases that make that have made men enabled men to be to be the more published. Gender, I'm not sure, but um, uh, yeah, um, the Derrida one, I guess. Derrida is, is, is a theorist that I, I, I really truly admire his work, and 
Um, I don't. I can't always read his work, but I mean, I think that for me, it's fascinating that the connections between his work and um, and Buddhism, and you know, the connections between deconstructionism. And, and if people are interested, I've written an essay that was published in JSL about that. Um, so I think, in some ways, you know, he he kind of he he kind of um, he actually um, is a writer that that. Um, culturally diverse people can 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 connect with in terms of what he's saying about um, um, deconstructing you know the one the one representation the 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 one meaning that nationalities tend to get um, get absorbed in yes and another consistent theme in the story is is power structures and it strikes me that there is something a little bit, just going back to that theme of the mostly male um, canon authors, that they're all canon type authors that you've written to as well. Um, and this idea of there being a little bit of a reverence in, in questioning, you know, and being in writing to these people and bringing them into your work. It, it does seem in some ways to undermine some of those canonized power structures. Yes, um you remind me of that, Maggie, because although they are, you know, as mainly predominantly male writers that I address the letters to, I think a lot of them are actually quite challenging. Um, and, um, you know, for example, the letter to Katsaya, John Katsaya, is, is quite challenging of his ren his rendition of Melanie Isaacs in, in the novel Disgrace. And... Um, it actually questions the source of where ma the male writer, the male writer Coetze, gets his inspiration from, and who is actually, you know, where does where does inspiration begin, and um, and and you know, where does where does inspiration stop and writing start? I guess you know, so. Um, Yes, giving, giving Melanie a voice and giving Lolita a voice as well, and that's quite um, that's quite a powerful thing to do. Giving Lolita a voice as well in, with uh, Nabokov. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I wanted to. Uh, you know, it, it's almost like you know Nabokov writes that story of you know this this obsessed um, kind of narrator who who's kind of who's morally a little um, corrupted and, you know, I wanted to show that why should it just be a man that that um, has to be so obsessed in that quirky but also um, there's something very, very, um, uh, uh, there's something that, that we, that readers kind of have, have, a sympathy for him, and why cannot that? Why? Why is it that that also that he is the he's the one that has this desire? And what about the woman? What about her desire? What about her subjectivity being embodied in language and fiction? So I, I wanted to explore that. Um, and her power in and driving, sort of driving right the narrative or driving and shaping the story, and that that comes out in some of the other work as well, not just the letters. Yeah, sometimes it comes out in a more of an essayistic type of way. I think in in Melanie Isaacs is a part where I think that it's very powerful the way the way she talks about being a woman of color and 
you know, and what justice can a can can a coloured girl expect in in Cape Town? You know, I think I could really feel feel kind of um, um, things within me coming to the fore there when I was writing that about. Um, uh, yeah, I, I I could feel that energy. Um, so yeah, I, I think. Um, uh, well, where were we, what were you talking about? Um, the just these, the power structure between, say, you know, these these, uh, I guess the um, the men who drive the narrative, and and I guess their muses or the females who are part of the, those, almost the passive female in the story then becomes active and powerful in the way you shape them, at least with yeah. Melanie and Lolita. Yeah, interesting. That kind of relationship between desire and subjectivity and authority and um, agency, you know. Um, and I was also also interested because um, it, I think in contemporary and erotica, it is very unusual that uh, women of colour or culturally diverse women, or even actually, um, I think probably even Aboriginal women, um, are or I should I should probably not talk about Aboriginal literature, but um, certainly with culturally diverse women, it's unusual that their that their erotica gets published, you know. And this really actually annoys me. I just think, you know, why is it that it's only white women that can write that can be sexy and can talk about being sexy? Why why do women of colour have to talk about being a migrant and have to talk about the migrant narrative of coming to Australia and assimilating? Or you know, or going back to their home to to visit their relatives or things and so on. You know, I think uh, there there are kind of expectations placed on um, writers, and we are constantly being positioned. And um, and maybe perhaps part of what I'm doing in, in you know inadvertently in Letter to Pessoa is is questioning that kind of positioning by the slippage of of. Of voices and um, the fluidity of voices, um, absolutely. Which kind I, of, I felt that which, for sure. Which kind of also there is definite. I think there is most definitely a kind of um, a gender fluidity about the voice, as well as an intertextuality about it. So um, many of the stories um, have have narrators who are who might be bisexual or um, or the voice. Um, in which you know the, the the writer me myself the writer is writing in a male voice. So um, I think um, I think that that speaks to the nature of writing as a process that's not gendered. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Well, I, I think that's um, there's a lot of things that you undermine and open out in Letter to Pessoa. I, I highly recommend it to to listeners. So we're almost out of time, but um, and I know you're still touring Letter to Pessoa. You've got poetry out. Um, what's next for you, Michelle? What have you got on the plate? <laughs> if you can talk about it. Um. Well, right now my focus is um. Well, you know, obviously I'm just uh, still just um, doing readings and so forth from the book and taking it out there. Um, and, 
And then I'm also working on a, um, an exegesis and uh, working on a novel as well. Um, I'm interested in the re researching mixed ancestries and um, and my Anglo-Indian heritage as well. So that's part of my my um, my research. Yes. Wonderful. Well, we'll look forward to all that, and that is all we have time for today. So, Michelle, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much, Maggie. And thank bye, you. Bye for now. Bye.